in human society of this thing that's called the state. What is the state? The state is this organized bureaucracy. It is the police department. It is the army, the navy. It is the prison system, the courts, and what have you. This is the state. It is a repressive organization. But the state, and you, well, you know, you've got to have the police, because if there were no police, look at what you'd be doing to yourselves. You'd be killing each other if there were no police. But the reality is, the police become necessary in human society. At the precinct, you know how we think. Organize the hood under our ching banners. Red, black, and green instead of gang bandanas. FBI spying on us through the radio antennas. And them hitting cameras in the street like watching society. With no respect for the people's right to privacy. I take a slug for the cause like Huey P. While all you fake niggas try to copy Master P. I wanna be free to live, able to have what I need to live. Bring the power back to the street where the people live. We sick of working for crumbs and filling up the prisons. Dying over money and Relying on religion for help, we do for self like ants in a colony. Organize the wealth into a socialist economy, a way of life based off the common needs. And all my comrades is ready, we just spreading the seed. The black male live a third of his life in a jail cell, cause the world is controlled by the white male, and the people don't never get justice, and the women don't never get respected, and the problems don't never get solved, and the jobs don't never pay enough. No more bondage, no more political monsters, no more secret space launches. Government departments started it in the projects, material objects, thousands up in the closets. Could have been invested in the future for my comrades. Battle contacts, primitive weapons out in combat. Many never come back, pretty niggas be running with gas. Rather get shot in they back than fire back. We're tired of that. Corporations hiring blacks, denying the facts, exploiting us all over the map. That's why I write the shit I write in my raps. It's documented, I meant it. Every day of the week, I live in it, breathing it. It's more than just fucking believing it. I'm holding in ones, rolling up my sleeves and shit. It's C-Lo for push-ups now, many headed for one conclusion. Niggas ain't ready for revolution. The average black male live a third of his life in a jail cell. Cause the world is controlled by the white male. And the people don't never get justice. And the women don't never get respected. And the problems don't never get solved. And the jobs don't never pay enough. So the rent always be late. Can you relate? We living in a police state. That was a track police state from the group dead prez welcome to howie 2020 this is an independent podcast on progressive politics inspired by bernie sanders howie hawkins angela walker progressive and radical activism and the green party this podcast is completely independent of any candidate party pack or political organization if you want to reach out to me, you can go to bernie-2020.com. You'll find links there. You'll find a link there to make a uh, or send a message. You'll also find a link there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up, we have a piece written by Chris Hedges. This is published at Sheerpost and also republished at commondreams.org. The ruling elites no longer have legitimacy. They have destroyed our capitalist democracy and replaced it with a mafia state. What the Roman philosopher Cicero called a commonwealth, a res publica, a public thing, or the property of a people, 
has been transformed into an instrument of naked pillage and repression on behalf of a global corporate oligarchy. We are serfs ruled by obscenely rich, omnipotent masters who loot the U.S. Treasury, pay little or no taxes, and have perverted the judiciary, the media, and the legislative branches of government to strip us of civil liberties and give them the freedom to commit financial fraud and theft. The loss of control over our system of rulership, the misuse of all democratic institutions, the electoral process, and laws to funnel money upwards into a handful of oligarchs while stripping us of power, ominously means that the ruling elites can no longer claim the right to have a monopoly on violence. Violence employed by police and security agents such as the FBI, which have devolved into occupying forces, to protect the exclusive interests of a tiny ruling criminal class, exposes the fiction of the rule of law and the treason of the ruling elites. Quote, In order for nonviolence to work, your opponent must have a conscience, Stokely Carmichael warned. And if your opponent is bereft of a conscience, then state violence is inevitably met with counterviolence. Tyranny takes the place of reform. The danger of widespread sectarian violence in America is now very real. There are three options. Reform, which given the decay in the American body politic is impossible. Revolution or tyranny. The more things deteriorate, the more the elites feel threatened, the more brutal the police, the National Guard, and the organs of state security will become. The longer the serfs defy their masters, the more the populations in the jails and prisons, which are already the largest in the world, will swell. If the mafia state is, is not overthrown, then America will become a naked police state, where any opposition, however tepid, will be met with draconian censorship or force. Police in cities around the country have already thwarted the reporting by dozens of journalists covering the protests through physical force, arrests, tear gas, rubber bullets, and pepper spray. The huge social divides, largely built around race, will be used by the neo-fascists in power to divert a legitimate rage by a betrayed working class to set neighbor against neighbor. Neo-fascist patriots will be unleashed like the attack dogs against people of color, Muslims, feminists, intellectuals, artists, the media, and liberals. Dissent, even nonviolent dissent, will become treason. The uprisings in the streets of American cities are not only about the wanton murder by police of yet another person of color, but a frantic fight to wrest back power over our own lives. They go far behind police brutality a daily reality for those trapped in our internal colonies, where 1,100 citizens are murdered by police every year, almost all unarmed. The uprisings are fueled as well as by the seizure of the institutional and structural mechanisms that once made some form of equality, always imperfect and always colored by an animus towards the poor and people of color, possible. Half the country lives in poverty or a category called near poverty. The working class and working poor are priced out of the health care system. The schools do not educate their children who live without adequate food and often clean water, are repeatedly evicted from their homes, have their utilities shut off, cannot find jobs, are crippled by punishing debt peonage, and with the pandemic, are dying at a disproportionately higher rate. They get the message the oligarchs are sending. They and their children are expendable. They don't count. Their lives are of no consequence unless they are locked in a cage where their bodies can generate as much as $60,000 a year for the multitude of corporations, including 
the for-profit medical services, food services, money transfer services, commissary services, phone services, private prisons, and prison contractors, not to mention the large corporations and state governments that exploit the cheap and bonded labor of one million of our 2.3 million prisoners. The prison system is a multi-billion dollar industry with lobbyists in state capitals in Washington making sure these bodies remain in cages or are put back into cages soon after they are released. The neo-slavery in our prisons is a corporate model envisioned for all of America. The two ruling parties are equally complicit in this assault. The Democratic Party, in the midst of the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression, is trying to sell us a presidential nominee, Joe Biden, who is one of the principal architects of deindustrialization and responsible for the loss of hundreds of thousands of good union jobs. Biden and Bill Clinton also destroyed our welfare program, where 70% of the recipients were children, and orchestrated the doubling of our prison population, and the tripling and quadrupling of sentences. Biden, as Naomi Murakawa points out in The First Civil Right, How Liberals Built Prison America, was a driving force behind the notoriously harsh penalties in the Anti-Drug Abuse Acts of 1986 and 88, and the Three Strikes legislation in the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994, which also provided funding for 100,000 new police officers in the aggressive prosecution of 60 new capital crimes. He sponsored legislation to dramatically curtail the ability of those in prison to appeal and led the passage of the Federal Death Penalty Act of 1994 and the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996. He oversaw the militarization of the police and the massive expansion of death-eligible crimes, which he has repeatedly bragged about. Biden was also at the forefront of the resegregation of our public school system and has repeatedly called for cuts to Social Security. He was instrumental in the disastrous trade deals such as the North American Free Trade Agreement and austerity programs, as well as establishing the most pervasive system of mass government surveillance in human history. Watching Stacey Abrams, who certainly knows better, twist herself into contortions to lavish praise on Biden even tossing the Me Too movement overboard, is another sad example of the corrosive disease of careerism. Biden, one of the most important architects behind the wars in the Middle East, where we have squandered up to $7 trillion and destroyed or extinguished the lives of millions of people, is personally responsible for far more suffering and death at home and abroad than Donald Trump. If we had a functioning judicial and legislative system, Biden, along with the other architects of our disastrous imperial wars, plundering of the country, and betrayal of the American working class, would be put on trial, not offered up as a solution to our political and economic debacle. The myopia of the ruling elites is that they think they can foist Biden on us because he is not Trump. But the game is up. The facade of democracy no longer works. It is only the dwindling and largely white middle and professional classes who still believe the fiction that this election offers a choice or that we live in a democracy. The working class and the working poor know better. Their lives were, as Barbara Ehrenreich wrote, one long emergency before the pandemic. Now they face the prospect of bankruptcy this summer when unemployment and stimulus checks run out. The moratorium is lifted on evictions to double or triple the unhoused population of 11 million people. And unemployment skyrockets to 25%. 48% of frontline workers remain ineligible for sick pay. And some 43 million Americans have just lost their employee-sponsored health insurance. 
Food banks are already overrun with tens of thousands of desperate families. And in the midst of this crisis, what did our kleptocratic rulers do? They looted $4 trillion on a scale unseen since the 2008 bailout overseen by Barack Obama and Biden. They gorged and enriched themselves at our expense while tossing crumbs out of the windows of their private jets, yachts, and palatial homes to the suffering and despised masses. The CARES Act handed trillions in funds or tax breaks to oil companies, the airline industry, which alone got $50 billion in stimulus money, the cruise ship industry, a $170 billion windfall for the real estate industry, private equity firms, lobbying groups, whose political action committees have given $191 million in campaign contributions to politicians in the last two decades, the meat industry, and corporations that are moved offshore to avoid U.S. taxes. The act allowed the largest corporations to gobble up money that was supposed to go to keep small businesses solvent to pay workers. It gave 80% of tax breaks under the stimulus package to millionaires and allowed the wealthiest to get stimulus checks that average $1.7 million. The CARES Act also authorized $454 billion for the Treasury Department's Exchange Stabilization Fund, a massive slush fund doled out by Trump cronies to corporations that when leveraged 10 to 1 can be used to create a staggering $4.5 trillion in assets. The act authorized the Fed to give $1.5 trillion in loans to Wall Street, which no one expects will ever be paid back. American billionaires have gotten $434 billion richer since the pandemic. Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world, whose corporation Amazon paid no federal taxes last year, alone added $34.6 billion to his personal wealth since the pandemic started. How long can you expect people to watch their children go hungry? How long can you expect people to watch their loved ones suffer and die because they can't get medical care? How long can you expect people to be abused by the lawless police and a court system designed to railroad the poor into jails and prisons? How long can you watch the rich profit from your misery? I would prefer that our revolution eschew the poison of violence, which I know too intimately from my two decades as a war correspondent. But I also know that when everything around you conspires to crush you, the only way left to affirm yourself is to destroy not only the structures and institutions that have oppressed you, but often yourself. I saw this when I lived in the impoverished neighborhood of Roxbury in Boston and when I worked as a reporter in Gaza. This understanding was something Malcolm X, who came out of poverty, always understood and Martin Luther King, a product of the black bourgeoisie, learned later. It is ultimately the ruling elites who will determine the mechanics of resistance. When they close every escape route, when they speak exclusively in the language of force, then the language of force becomes the only form of communication. Trump's demand that states use the National Guard to crush the protests and threat to deploy the U.S. military in the streets of American cities only heightens the anger and frustration that led to the uprisings. The ruling elites are, at the same time, desperately seeking scapegoats. The idea that Antifa, which on the spectrum of terrorist groups, would rank alongside the Boy Scouts, is behind these clashes is as ridiculous as the idea that Russia is responsible for the election of Trump. This desperate search for explanations that absolve the ruling elites saw Susan Rice, who was Obama's national security advisor, Blame the violence on, quote, foreign actors, adding that, quote, this is right out of the Russian playbook. 
This trope is always trotted by despotic rulers to discredit dissidents who are branded as the enemy of the people. The longer the ruling elites refuse to address the root causes behind these protests, the more they loot the treasury to enrich themselves and their fellow oligarchs, the more they engage in futile and absurd efforts to deflect blame, the more unrest will spread. The last desperate resort by the oligarchs to save themselves will be to stoke the fires of racialized violence between disenfranchised whites and disenfranchised people of color. This, I fear, is the next chapter in this saga. I saw this tactic used to deadly effect in the former Yugoslavia. These are dark times. They are about to get darker. Next up, we have a piece by the ACLU, and this is published at aclu.org. COVID-19 presents an enormous risk to those in carceral facilities and their surrounding communities. Since the pandemic began, more than 50,000 people in prison have tested positive for the coronavirus, and over 600 have died. These infections and deaths were largely preventable, as we demonstrated in April by working with academic partners to build an epidemiological model that illustrated the deadly threat of COVID-19 in jails. In response to this crisis, and in many localities only after substantial public pressure and threats of litigation, some governors, sheriffs, and judges made the decision to shift detention policies to prioritize protecting the lives of those who live and work in jails and prisons. Some states and localities reduced low-level arrests or set bail to zero dollars for certain charges. Others released a small subset of incarcerated people who are nearing the end of their term or were most vulnerable to the disease, sometimes under court order. While no jail system has gone far enough, county jails and state prison systems across the U.S. have taken differing levels of action, allowing for a unique opportunity to explore the relationship between decarceration and crime in the community. To explore this, the ACLU's analytics team looked for data on jail population and crime in locations with the largest jail and overall populations. We were able to find reported data on both from 29 localities. Nearly every county jail that we examined reduced their population, if only slightly, between the end of February and the end of April. Over this time period, we found that the reduction in jail population was functionally unrelated to crime trends in the following months. In fact, in nearly every city explored, Fewer crimes occurred between March and May in 2020 compared to the same time period in 2019, regardless of the magnitude of the difference in jail population. We found no evidence of any spikes in crime in any of the 29 locations, even when comparing monthly trend over the past two years. The release of incarcerated people from jails has saved lives both in jails and in the community, all while monthly crime trend were within or below average ranges in every city. The team's findings were in line with recent reports that documented certain types of crime have gone down during the COVID-19 pandemic, which many attribute to stay-at-home orders and decreased overall activity. City-level crime trends are complex and influenced by many factors, including temperature, with crime rates typically rising in the summer months. The analysis confirmed that the amount by which a county changed its jail population wasn't correlated with the amount of change in crime. This confirmation comes at a time when reducing jail populations is urgently necessary. The epidemiological model of the, ACL, the ACLU developed in partnership with academics in April illustrated the profound risk COVID-19 presents to people in carceral facilities and their surrounding communities. 
The model found that swift action to reduce jail populations could save lives, but inaction could lead to an estimated 100,000 deaths in jails in the surrounding communities. Since then, COVID-19 has continued to spread rampantly through jails, prisons, and immigration detention centers. More than 50,000 people in prison have tested positive for the coronavirus, and over 600 have died. Further research has confirmed what we feared. Cycling through a jail is one of the largest risk factors for COVID-19 transmission. For black and brown people already disproportionately harmed by the criminal justice system, this system only exacerbates COVID-19's unequal impact. Arresting fewer people and releasing people from jail during a pandemic, as the 29 localities highlighted here have done, has undoubtedly saved lives in jails and in surrounding communities. What's more, crime was lowered this spring in nearly every location, and the amount of decarceration or incarceration appears uncorrelated with crime patterns. No state has gone far enough, and all should continue to reduce their jail, prison, and detention center populations, particularly for those who are most vulnerable. The potential fatal threat of COVID-19 in jails and prisons, and the risk of transmission between jail staff and the surrounding populations, should be reason enough to release as many people as possible. As states struggle to return to, quote, normal, many life-saving policies are being quietly ended. California rescinded a statewide policy setting bail to zero dollars for low-level offenses, even as Los Angeles County continues to see record levels of new coronavirus cases. The threat of COVID-19 is still very much alive, and it highlights the arbitrary nature of our criminal legal system. And any, any and all policies to reduce arrests in light of COVID-19 should extend indefinitely and should not be replaced with a system of fines and fees. The data shows we don't have to choose between public safety and public health. Reducing jail populations saves lives, and these reductions must continue. Next up, the Democrats have released a draft of their platform for the 2020 presidential election season. So we're going to take a look at a portion of that. What does it have to say about health care and extending health care to all Americans? And then we're going to take a look at Howie Hawkins and Angela Walker's statement and plans regarding health care in their candidacy. First up, this you can find at demconvention.com. This is from a draft of the Democratic platform. Securing universal health care through a public option. Democrats believe we need to protect, strengthen, and build upon our bedrock health care programs, including the Affordable Care Act, Medicare, Medicaid, and the Veterans Affairs System. Private insurers need real competition to ensure they have incentive to provide affordable quality coverage to every American. To achieve that objective, we will give all Americans the choice to select a high-quality, affordable public option through the Affordable Care Act marketplace. The public option will provide at least one planned choice without deductibles will be administered by CMS, not private companies, and will cover all primary care without any co-payments and control costs for other treatments by negotiating prices with doctors and hospitals, just like Medicare does on behalf of older people. Everyone will be eligible to choose the public option or another Affordable Care Act marketplace plan. To help close the persistent racial gap in insurance rates, Democrats will expand funding for Affordable Care Act outreach and enrollment programs, so every American knows their options for securing quality, affordable coverage. 
The lowest income Americans, including more than 4 million adults who should be eligible for Medicaid, but who live in states where Republican governors have refused to expand the program, will be automatically enrolled in the public option without premiums. They may opt out at any time. And we will enable millions of older workers to choose between their employer-provided plans, the public option, or enrolling in Medicare when they turn 60, instead of having to wait until they are 65. Democrats will also empower the states as laboratories of democracy to use Affordable Care Act innovation waivers to develop locally tailored approaches to health coverage, including by removing barriers to states that seek to experiment with statewide universal health care approaches. We also know that finally covering every American through the public and private insurance system alone is not enough to guarantee universal access. That is why Democrats support doubling investments in community health centers and rural health clinics, including increased support for dental care, mental health care, and substance use services like medication-assisted treatment, and why we will increase support for mobile health clinics. We will enact longer multi-year funding cycles for these critical health services so they can operate with greater certainty. And we'll leverage innovative payment options through Medicare and Medicaid to help rural health clinics keep their doors open. We will expand the National Health Service Corps to address critical shortage of health care providers in rural areas, including primary care nurses, dental professionals, and mental health and substance use counselors. So that is the section of the Democratic platform that is called Securing Universal Health Care Through a Public Option. So basically, their Democrats promise to improve the health care funding for the public is to provide an option that is sponsored by the government that Americans can purchase on in the Affordable Care Act um, marketplace. Woefully inadequate. Won't come close to serving our health care needs. Won't come close to covering all American residents. But just as promised, Biden has promised to take baby steps on any anything, any program, at least any program that benefits the public. I'll bet he's willing to take giant leaps for programs that benefit the wealthy and the corporations. So I only read that. Well, I read that so uh, we can understand how little the Democrats are really offering in that regard in this election cycle, but mostly to contrast with Howie Hawkins and Angela Walker's plans for health care. This is from HowieHawkins.us. This is Medicare for All as a Community-Controlled National Health Service. The United States has a growing health crisis. Almost 30 million people have no health insurance, and another 86 million adults are underinsured, meaning they have inadequate health insurance or can't afford the copays and deductibles required before their insurance coverage kicks in. Although the United States spends over twice as much on health care per person each year as the average wealthy nation, the status of our health is poor and our lives are getting shorter. Over 500,000 families go bankrupt each year because of medical illness. Almost two-thirds of all personal bankruptcies, something that doesn't happen in other wealthy countries. And people are dying at higher rates in the United States than in other wealthy nations because they can't afford necessary medications such as insulin for diabetes. Life expectancy in the United States is falling. 
The fundamental problem with the healthcare system in the United States is that it is designed to create profits for a few rather than guarantee healthcare to everyone. Corporations are taking over all aspects of the system, giving them a tremendous amount of control over prices and what healthcare people can or cannot have. Major health insurance companies currently receive most of their revenues from the government by providing, quote, public insurance, such as Medicaid managed care organizations and Medicare Advantage plans. The government has become a cash cow for the health insurers, a guaranteed payer that will line their executives and investors' pockets. The first and most basic step that needs to be taken in order to create a functioning healthcare system is that is that is universal, improves health, and controls costs is to decommodify healthcare. Healthcare does not belong in the marketplace. The Hawkins Healthcare Plan, outlined below, treats healthcare as a human right and a public good. It starts by immediately implementing national health insurance, what is commonly called today a single-payer improved Medicare for all. In the second phase, it builds out a national health service where healthcare facilities are publicly owned, healthcare workers are salaried, and the system is governed by community boards elected by the public and healthcare workers. The second phase conducts a national assessment of unmet healthcare needs, develops a plan to meet those needs, implements the plan, and converts the system to a fully public and democratically run healthcare service. The Hawkins Healthcare Plan, culminating in a community-based national health service, has its roots in the Josephine Butler United States Healthcare Service Act, which was introduced into every Congress for over 30 years, from 1977 to 1998, by Representative Ron Dellums, and from 1999 to 2010, by his successor, Representative Barbara Lee. It was developed by medical and consumer advocates, and particularly by civil rights movement veterans in the Medical Committee for Human Rights. It is time to again expand the health care reform agenda from socialized insurance for privatized care to a fully socialized and democratic system, publicly funded, publicly administered, and publicly delivered. Phase 1. Universal Comprehensive Coverage and Conversion to Non-Profit In Phase 1, all people will be covered with comprehensive benefits and profits will be removed from the system. On January 1 of the year after the bill is signed, all people residing in the United States or its territories will be automatically registered in a national improved Medicare public health insurance program, which will replace all other public and private health insurances. Residency will not require citizenship. The Veterans Administration and the Indian Health Service will continue, but with full funding instead of the current underfunding. Every person will receive a Medicare card that enables them to seek care at any health facility in the United States and its territories. If a person seeks care, they are presumed to be covered and will receive treatment whether they have a card or not. This card will grant coverage for the duration of each person's life. Discrimination based on age, ability, gender or gender identification, sexual orientation, race, religion, national origin, ethnicity, political or other opinion, social origin, property, birth or other status will be prohibited in a process for registering, investigating and resolving complaints of discrimination will be established. All medically necessary care will be covered, including hospitalization, surgery, emergency services, transportation, outpatient care, checkups, preventive care services, diagnostic treatment services, rehabilitation, physical and occupational therapy, substance abuse services, mental health care, vision, hearing, dental care, reproductive services, pharmaceuticals, medical devices, 
home and community-based habilitative, habilitative care, as well as home-based and institutional long-term care and support services. In-home and community-based treatment will be prioritized. Complementary services provided by licensed individuals, such as chiropractic care and acupuncture, will also be covered. Authorization for services outside the standard of care will be made in consultation with health professionals with relevant expertise. The system will respect patients' individual autonomy, allow medical choice, and protect informed consent. An appeals process for patients who are denied care will be established. Family members who provide short, medium, or long-term care in the home will be compensated for providing that care in an extension of the Family Medical Leave Act. Parents will be provided with extended leave for the first year of each child's life, encouraging both parents to take time off to provide care, with compensation and their job guaranteed when they return. There will be no out-of-pocket costs for care such as copays or deductibles, and no supplemental health insurance will be needed because the National Improved Medicare for All will provide all medically necessary services. The system will be funded up front by allocating current public health care dollars, about 70% of current spending, to the system and filling the gap using progressive taxes on individuals and families, both earned and unearned income, who earn more than 150% of the adjusted federal poverty level and on large corporations. All licensed health professionals will be included in the health care system. Patients can choose their health professional and stay with that person or change caregivers if they so desire. If a patient requires specialized care, they can seek care at any facility in the United States or its territories. All health facilities will be required to be either public or non-profit institutions or independent not-for-profit practitioner offices. Investor-owned facilities and not-for-profits that operate like investor-owned facilities will not be included in the system. Facilities excluding independent practitioners will receive a global budget to cover operating costs and a separate budget for capital improvements. Health professionals working in these facilities will be salaried. Independent practitioners may continue to bill the system as fee-for-service under a new payment system that compensates for time spent caring for a patient, including care coordination. Negotiation for reimbursement for services will occur between the Department of Health and Human Services and health professional organizations. Incentives will be provided for those who practice in underserved areas or in types of medical practice that are lacking, such as primary care. Payment arrangements that shift risk or reward to health professionals, such as value-based or performance-based methods or managed care or accountable care organizations, will be prohibited. Provision of services for cash or that is outside the system in any way will be banned. Health facilities that choose not to convert to the above will be acquired by the system for the market value of the facility. Financing the buyout would require approximately 1% of total health spending using a treasury bill at a rate of 3% interest over 15 years. These facilities will become publicly owned and will be turned over to the local government and communities for oversight. A democratic structure for community and worker control and accountability will be established at the local, county, state, and national levels. At the local community level, health boards will be elected two-thirds by the general public and one-third by the health care providers in the community. These boards will elect members of the county boards which in turn will elect the state boards, which will elect the national board. Every health facility will be evaluated annually by a commission composed of employees, health advocates, and community members. That review will inform improvements to the facility. The reports will be collected by the county health department and used in an annual review of health needs in the county. The county reports will be integrated into a statewide evaluation of health outcomes and health needs that will be submitted to the Department of Health and Human Services annually 
for health planning. Capital improvements must be applied for and approved at the county, state, and federal level. The early review will identify areas of potential fraud and abuse for investigation. Workers who are displaced from employment as a direct result of the new system will be prioritized for hire into the new system. Those who are not hired in the new system will be eligible for up to five years support with their current income and benefits and retraining for a new job. Prices for pharmaceuticals and services provided by the system will be negotiated on a yearly basis. Pharmaceutical and medical device corporations that fail to satisfactorily negotiate with the system may lose their license to produce their drug or device, and the healthcare system will assume production. A national formulary will be established that provides evidence-based information about licensed pharmaceuticals and medical devices to health professionals and the public. Pharmaceutical and medical device representatives who directly market their products to health professionals and direct-to-consumer advertising will be banned. Phase 2. Improvement of Health Outcomes and Transition to Public Health Care Service Within two years after the initiation of the new system, a national system of medical records will be established and provided to all health professionals. The new system will be constructed to support high-quality care and reduce administrative burden on health professionals. Information from the new system will be used to develop an anonymous national database of health service utilization and health outcomes. A National Public Health Commission will be established to use the database to determine where there are un unmet health needs and health disparities, to identify areas needing intervention, and to locate outliers in the system that may need attention. Within four years after the initiation of the new system, a comprehensive plan of action will be developed by the Public Health Commission to identify priority areas for urgent intervention, such as construction of health facilities, recruitment of health professionals, and training of health practitioners in areas where there are deficiencies to improve health outcomes. Implementation of the plan will begin within six months after completion. All new facilities will be publicly owned. Within five years after the initiation of the new system, a review of health education will be conducted and teaching institutions will be converted to a public system that may be expanded to meet needs as determined in the Comprehensive Plan of Action. All students, including physicians, dentists, nurses, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, pharmacists, social workers, therapists, and caregivers, will be provided with education at no cost up front, with the expectation they will serve in the system for a minimum of 15 years. Residency programs will be restructured to accommodate the need for increases in certain areas such as primary care. Sufficient numbers of health professionals will be trained to meet needs for lower caseloads across the spectrum, from social workers to therapists, caregivers, nurses, physician assistants, and doctors. Within five years after initiation of the new system, the Veteran Administration will be incorporated into the national system. Specialty centers for veterans will continue to exist, but from day one, veterans can choose where to seek care. Indian Health Service facilities will also be incorporated into the national system. Indian Health Centers and Hospitals will continue to exist, but from day one, all tribal members can choose where to seek care. Indian health facilities will have oversight by local commissions composed of tribal members and will receive additional resources to establish culturally appropriate systems and practices. Within six years of the new system, the Public Health Commission will establish yearly public health priorities and plans to address them will be implemented. This may include public education projects, changes to infrastructure, and policy changes to impact the social determinants of health. Within eight years after the initiation of the new system, all pharmaceutical and medical device manufacturing and distribution will become publicly owned and medical research will be fully funded through public institutions. 
National priorities for research and development will be established by the Department of Health and Human Services based on input from the Public Health Commission and the annual health system reviews. Within 10 years after the initiation of the new system, all health facilities will be acquired and operated by the National Health System and a network of care facilities will be established. All residents of the United States and its territories will have access to community-based primary care. Primary care facilities will refer to local specialty care facilities and tertiary care facilities. All health professionals will be salaried employees with compensation based on cost of living, seniority in the system, workload, and incentives for working in underserved areas. So that is the Howie Hawkins plan for Medicare for All as a community-controlled national health service. A much better plan than the plan that's in the Democratic uh, Party's platform. Finally, here's a piece published at aljazeera.com written by Yannick Giovanni Marshall. The American media is not a cop watch program. It is an arm of the police state. Imagine believing police reports. After all of the independent autopsies, the cell phone video recordings, the body cam footage found to be, quote, not consistent with the police report. Imagine still assuming these reports to be a record of the facts as they occurred. After the police obfuscation of Laquan McDonald's murder, the toy guns of Baltimore, the evidence planting, the DNA exonerations, imagine still reporting police narratives of truth and still writing sentences for teleprompter scripts like, quote, the police officer thought the suspect was reaching for a gun. Imagine taking U.S. justice seriously after what happened to Khalif Browder. In a fair society, an institution that has consistently proven itself so willing to misrepresent facts on race and violence that it has become a running joke for generations of black stand-up comedians might have its, quote, reports viewed with suspicion. In American society, the media is embedded with the police, just as it is in American imperialism, where journalists are embedded with the U.S. Army hitching a ride in army convoys, observing conflict from the perspective of one belligerent and yet performing objectivity. The media is not a check on power when it comes to the police. It is not a cop watch program. It humanizes a violent paramilitary institution. It publishes its mugshots and aids in surveillance. It disciplines populations into obedience and is the velvet glove to orders iron fist. It amplifies, quote, official narratives. It normalizes the presumption of police innocence. It takes the police at their word. Police do not claim something happened. Their report is what happened. Trial verdicts do not claim the convict did it. The convict did it, as can be seen by the trial verdict. The law through the doctrine of cognizable offenses or probable cause sacralizes the cop, elevating their notepads and testimony to a gospel truth, and the media runs to the town people to preach. Functionally, the media is an arm of policing. There are no primetime television programs about life escaping the fining, harassment, groping, and physical assault of the roving, murdering warlords of white supremacy and capital. No character-driven dramas about surviving the colony's paramilitary forces, ushering in an orderly gentrification and the accumulation of lives and living spaces to make room for yuppie royalty. No shows for the beaten to watch their batterers being frog-marched out of their neighborhoods, if only on screen. Instead, Live PD, The First 48, Investigative Discovery, and the constant proliferation of cop dramas lionize the colony's 
henchmen. In the media, the badge-wearing violent are heroes and heroines sweeping away crime with an unwavering commitment to honor and fairness. They are depicted in the same flattering light colonists depict their pioneer forebears, sweeping away, quote, native savagery a century ago. In place of the pith helmet and mustache are the cop haircut and the badge, but the arms remain akimbo. Television, whether deliberately or not, complements police power and permits no abolitionist perspectives. Dick Wolf is to American policing what John Wayne was to U.S. Empire. Cable news at a moment when people demand the abolishing of the police and the voicing of different futures invites police chiefs who provide, quote, examples of police leadership. Liberal hosts parrot activist language of social justice in monologues, only to then give platforms to commanders of the institution the activists protest against. The invited police chiefs then proceed to patronize protesters as, quote, not only anarchists, as if being radically against the order of bleach drinking and potato sack kidnappings is something to be ashamed of. Anchors on centrist networks offer, in place of analysis, tears and declarations of shock at witnessing the sadism of the George Floyd murder. Transient outrage takes up time that could otherwise be filled with examining the police institution itself. Answers are tapped out the same, out of the same on-hand black liberal academics instead of the thinkers in the black radical tradition who since slavery have been devoted to the critique of the forceful capture and destruction of black people. Anchors cry or look into the camera and call the president a thug, but offer no mea culpa for complicity in the policing project which has now come full circle. The American policing project today bears similarity to the Nazi regime, which applied colonialist procedures to Europeans previously reserved exclusively for the colonies, the arbitrary arrests, the slave patrol, forced disappearances, etc. Today, political dissidents and activists, including those who are white, face practices previously reserved for the black underclass, the unhomed and immigrants. It is not only in the colonies and post-colonies of Africa, Asia, and Latin America that, quote, the policeman and the soldier, by their immediate presence and their frequent indirect action, advise the people by means of rifle butts and napalm not to budge. Today, it also happens in the business districts of American metropolises. It is no longer unimaginable that it will be white people in the suburbs, corporate offices, and Democratic Party headquarters who are next to be thrown against the hood of a cruiser or pushed into unmarked police vehicles. However intense the display or forceful the con condemnation, punditry is all sound and fury, signifying nothing. Worse than nothing. Liberal pundits carry water for police. They sell retraining and reform and the other PR catchwords police keep in their back pockets for whenever one of their killings spills out onto the national stage. They affect a highway robbery of abolitionist efforts. They suggest beginning a conversation a project that not only reveals the depths of the disregard paid to the history of black outcry and opposition to racist state violence, but disingenuously presents dialogue as a solution rather than their business. Individual racists cannot be persuaded away from racism at a faster rate than white supremacist society produces racists. Dialogue is a scam. Police-embedded media is particularly harmful at this moment because it shares the media landscape with an expanding white nationalist news media. Nightly, the most powerful white nationalist television network in the world attempts to incite white mobs against protesters. Every night, their hosts look directly into the camera and warn about anarchist protesters and unruly thugs coming to get the viewer and their property. Assured, of course, that their audience is not out protesting against racial injustice. 
Every night they inch closer to telling their viewers to grab their pangas and, quote, cut down the tall trees. They carry the mantle of those who incited mobs of white people to massacre black people in 1919, Elaine, Arkansas, in 1921, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and in a hundred other, quote, race riots. Every night they use their cryons, like white nationalist lynch mob apologist newspapers before them use their editorial pages, to incite violence against non-white people, disfigure and criminalize the memories of the victims of racist violence, and excuse their killers. Their hosts inaugurated their television careers accused of making Nazi salutes, and their chief writers got caught writing for neo-Nazi websites. These are the people cop-embedded journalists refer to as colleagues. Another public sphere is possible, one that does not consider, quote, the reckoning on race in the newsrooms as being expressed as a more diverse team. Diversity understood to be different bodies articulating the same liberal perspectives is possible only when power genuinely believes black people have nothing valuable to contribute other than than their bodies. Black radicals are a dime a dozen, and yet they are barred from interpreting on camera the uprising their labor has birthed. A media is possible that can analyze the culture of anti-black pogroms without needing to be spurred on by a bystander capturing a pleasure killing on a cell phone. A media that does not call friends white nationalist journalists who call every lynching victim, quote, no angel, in order to defend the lyncher. One that has no truck with journalists seeking to frame black people for their own murder, any more than they would with those rooting through Holocaust victims' past, searching for a sin to hand over to Nazi apologists. One day we will have a media that is no longer embedded with the cops, one that will not smile at kneeling cops' photos or at the National Guard Macarena dancing with liberal protesters, or any other domestic version of American soldiers giving soccer balls to Iraqi children as it kills them in the background. One day neither police reports nor courts will be taken seriously, and the cop-embedded media that dresses henchmen up as heroes will be abolished and replaced with a continuous feed of freedom. And that'll wrap up this episode of Howie 2020. Remember, if you want to check out all the back episodes, you can go to bernie-2020.com. You can also follow on Twitter at BernieUS2020. And as we exit, here is a song from Chumbawamba. This is more whitewashing. Thanks for listening. Thank you.